1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Machteld Wenken about her new book, Peripheries at the Center, Borderland Schooling in Interwar Europe, which was published by Bergkamp Books in 2021. Welcome, Machteld. Thank you.
1: I'm honored to be here.
2: Just a little background on Dr. Venken before we begin. She is a Professor of Contemporary Transnational History at the Luxembourg Center for Contemporary and Digital History. She earned her PhD in 2008 at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium and her Habilitation in 2018 at the University of Vienna. She has been a principal investigator of eight research projects funded in four European countries. Her main research areas are transnational, transregional, and comparative histories of Europe, migration, borderlands, the history of families and children, and citizen science. So, Machtel, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic?
1: In my first book, I focused on migrants from behind the Iron Curtain who settled in Belgium during the Cold War. And uh, more specifically, I compared the experiences of immigrant men and immigrant women, And afterwards, I was a postdoctoral researcher in Poland, and there I was given the opportunity to write an expertise paper on the history of women and children for the Museum of the Second World War in Gdansk. And this was the first time I read about uh, children's war and post-war experiences, and I became interested in the situation of children in in border regions that switched uh, state sovereignty as a result of the war or after the war. And my first articles uh, on the history of children are also about, about this period of time, the early years after the Second World War. But then I felt that I needed to understand what had happened before, and this is how I ended up writing a book about children in borderlands in the years between the First um, and the Second World War. And let me mention one other thing before we uh, move on. This book is the outcome of a large and long research project Um, I conducted in in Austria. I moved to Austria for the project. I worked at the University of Vienna. And then after the project, I moved out again. And so it has been a privilege to do this project in Vienna. I was surrounded by a lot of scholars interested in borders and border changes and in um, life in borderlands.
2: Well, it's really a fascinating and impressive work and indeed necessary because certainly we need to know a lot more about some of the institutional changes that occurred in the case of your book, Schooling, uh, in these uh, borderland regions. And uh, I'm particularly looking forward to using it in the classroom because I teach a class on war and its aftermath. And this book will be really useful for illuminating some of the social effects of war and, in particular, territorial change. Um, And I especially uh, appreciate your focus on uh, everyday life as well. So I'd like to start with a general discussion of your book. And you focus on the border changes that occurred uh, both to the east and west of Germany after the First World War as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. So can you tell our listeners about these territorial shifts, uh, including the reestablishment of Poland, And why you chose these particular case studies, uh, namely uh, Polish Upper Silesia and Eupen, Sanwit and Malmedy in Belgium.
1: Well, the title of the book is Peripheries at the Center. And I chose this title in order to point out, yes, we are not used to thinking of borderlands as places that can be central to our understanding um, of a history of Europe. And and I developed the thesis in this book that after the First World War, when statesmen gathered in France to lay out the conditions of peace, they were convinced um, borders on the continent needed to be replaced so as to bring Europe to order. In other words, um, making peace meant, to a great extent, mapping Europe to peace. And the book demonstrates how the borderlands they mapped became the places where these imaginations of a peaceful Europe experienced um, a great challenge, and in order to do that research, um, I developed a symmetrical comparison of two case study borderlands. And these are Polish Upper Silesia in interwar Poland on the one hand, and the regions of Eupen, Sankt Witt and Malmady um, in interwar Belgium on the other. And these pieces of land, they switched uh, to another state sovereignty um, after the First World War. Before, they used to be part of, of Germany. Now, comparing uh, Poland with Belgium seems a little bit odd, but but it's not. In fact, it's well-motivated. Um, I used five selective criteria in order to come up with exactly these case studies. So first, I wanted to assess um, the way in which the League of Nations um, influenced uh, the life of borderland inhabitants. And this influence was present in Central and in Southeastern Europe, but not in Western Europe. And this is why I felt the need to include uh, one case study from Central Europe and one from Western Europe. And that is how I ended up um, selecting my um, borderlands from the pieces of land that that switched sovereignty um, following the Treaty of Versailles, because that treaty covered territorial changes in both parts of Europe. And the second uh, criterion... um, uh, was then that um, yeah well Belgium turned out to be uh, an interesting case because it had this constitution guaranteeing the freedom of religion and the practice of languages, and so it actually offered its inhabitants uh, you could say an alternative protective system to these protective measures uh, for minorities supervised by the League of Nations. So that is why I chose um, Belgium for as a Western European case study. And then third, I opted for a borderland uh, in interwar Poland and not for one that joined Czechoslovakia or Lithuania because it's a book about children and compulsory education was implemented in Poland and in Belgium um, at the same time, right after the First World War. So this made the comparison nice. And then the fourth decision, that was because um, these regions of Eupen, uh, Sankt Vitae and Malmady, they were practically entirely... Um, Catholic, Roman Catholic regions and that is why I also wanted to have a, a predominantly Roman Catholic um, border region in Poland as well and this is why I selected Polish Upper Silesia and then the last criterion is, well, so these regions of Ipen, Sankt Witt and Malmedy they are covered with woods and agricultural lands and because Polish Upper Silesia is, was much bigger than these regions of Ipen, Sankt Witt and Malmedy I downsized the analysis to its most rural district, and this was uh, the Lubliniec district, and it had a relatively comparable size and um, number of inhabitants.
2: Well, you definitely make a compelling case for why these regions uh, warrant comparison. I'd like to ask a broader question now related to identity and nation. So how does your study of borderland regions illuminate the complexities and contradictions associated with national self-determination in the post-war period? Uh, And perhaps before this, you can tell us how you define borderlands.
1: This principle of self-determination, it was the president of the USA, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who so vehemently uh, supported this principle when he was in France um, after the First World War now you see that many parties parties involved at this negotiation tables they gave it um, different interpretations because it was a vague concept um, and that's why it could not possibly rectify the continent's problems. so was this um, to give uh, the opportunity uh, to all to live in what they imagined as their own state, or did the concept refer to elaborated um, democratic self-government? That remained unclear. And moreover, this intertwinement of um, self-determination and peace, this did not always mean much in Central and Eastern Europe, because when the Great War came to an end, um, you have these competing aspirations of self-determination within lands of, of former multinational empires. And, and this competition could take the shape of, of a civil war. And and it then generated facts that these architects of uh, Europe's peace in France could not ignore. And so in the end, the results uh, of, of using that principle um, sometimes took the form of consensus decisions uh, that were made about the shape of state border lines, uh, and these were indeed predetermined by the architects of peace in France, and then they were lo- later to be discussed and ratified uh, within uh, individual nation-states. And this is what happened in the case of um, of Belgium. Uh, but sometimes uh, they were dictated by troops on the ground, and that was, uh, to a great extent, uh, the case of Polish of uh, by Silesia, in a way... Um, Yes, so there were uprisings, and then uh, there was also a plebiscite, and then the outcome of the plebiscite could not possibly, on the basis of the outcome of the plebiscite, you could not possibly split the region between Germany and Poland. So in the end, um, it was uh, was a decision made on the supranational level. The definition of borderlands, so um, usually it refers to pieces of land Finding themselves on opposite sides of one state borderline at the same time. This is the definition mostly used by borderland scholars, especially those not working on historical topics. But given the fact that Germany never abandoned its aspiration to regain the pieces of land it had ceded, so I considered a borderland for this book a piece of land that used to belong to one nation state and then it switched uh, state sovereignty. So I, I'm interested to see what happened when nation states contested lands um, at their state border lines. And for this historical study, uh, the temporal dimension is very important because after a switch of state sovereignty, you still have certain discourses, practices from the past that still influence the situation. And so I approach borders, therefore, as very complex historical contingent processes and and borderlands as places where different ideas on belonging are negotiated and renegotiated
2: while making use
1: of or adapting um, past discourses.
2: So you already discussed what triggered your interest in childhood, but why schooling and educational policies? Why are these fruitful Sites for examining identity, how it was constituted, refashioned, uh, expressed, uh, even contested in these borderland regions.
1: Thinking in terms of children was a way of thinking in interwar Europe. In fact, in the book, I say that in interwar Europe, there were three ways of thinking that came together. Thinking in terms of borderlands, in terms of language, and in terms of children. Thinking in terms of borderlands, uh, we already discussed that. The Treaty of Versailles trusts imagined ideas of a peaceful Europe onto borderlands. And this is why it makes sense to write a history of Europe from the perspective of borderlands. This is why peripheries were central. Thinking in terms of language. So you had maps that were stretched out on tables in Versailles. But there were also statistical data on knowledge of language. And these were used in order to draw state border lines. You really see that language that was believed, yeah, that this was the primary foundation of national belonging, one language, one nation. And then thinking in terms of children. So when Poland and Belgium gained state sovereignty over these new um, borderlands. They possessed pieces of land where compulsory education had a long tradition and they had not. And control over education within these uh, newly gained borderlands was considered essential for the functioning of these interwar um, nation states. And this control, it was believed, would offer the prospect of a common national socialization project for all of the countries youngest, and uh, future um, citizens. So the argument that I develop in the book is that this thinking in terms of of borderlands, of language and children, that taking that together resulted in the elevation of borderland schools as a basic foundation of the interwar European uh, political setup. So these borderland schools were elected to play a crucial role in the creation of a stable Europe. And language learning in borderland schools was used in order to prepare pupils to grow into citizens able to bring about a peaceful Europe.
2: So there was this idealistic component to schooling in the borderlands. And so that schools could be important for forging national identity, but not an exclusivist type of national identity based on discriminatory practices and uh, a national identity that could be combined with a supranational identity to help prepare peaceful European citizens, essentially. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the sources you use. So what types of sources do you draw on and what were some of the challenges you had in accessing sources? You note that a number of sources were destroyed during the Second World War. So how do you account for this in your analysis?
1: Well, in the end, I contacted... uh um, research in uh, 15 different archives in Poland, Belgium and Germany. And most importantly I lived in the borderlands. I lived in Katowice in Poland and I lived in Eupen in, in Belgium. And these regional sources um, I really saw that there was an imbalance between the Polish and the Belgian ones because uh, Polish Oprisalisia had operated as a distinct political entity and so it had generated paperwork about this border region specifically and this was not always the case for the regions of Eupen, Sankt Vita and Malmedy so it was more difficult to trace the paper trail Um, and then of course you had documents that were not available Um, in in Eupen uh, you had a French speaking school but it was set on fire during the German invasion in 1940 and in Sankt Vita and Malmedy these cities were bombed during Hitler's last offensive so materials is just gone but um, luckily the city archives of Eupen were very very rich and I also had um, press uh, sources and then on the national level so this means um, uh, archives in Warsaw and archives in Brussels um, so to speak um, there the results were not always satisfying of course we know that uh, sources on interwar Polish ministries are scarce because um Warsaw lay in ruins at the end of the Second World War. Um, but I was also disappointed that these archives of the Belgian Ministry of Education were practically non-consultable at the time because it was like 100 meters of archival files and there was no index and the documents were in chronological and not thematic order and it was simply impossible to filter out documents relevant for um, my case study, Borderland. But um, archival files in Germany um, on these contacts with borderland inhabitants, uh, they were in much better condition. Although I needed some time in order to come to see that uh, because um, before I uh, started working on this book, I had never consulted um, archival documents in Germany and I somehow naively thought that by visiting the archives in Berlin, I would manage and, and this was not true. Germany has a decentralized archival policy and, well, it meant I could see more of the country. So it was quite some work for me um, as an outsider at first um, to locate these archives, to find interesting collections there and and to really um, find new materials there. It's not something... That pops up the first time you um, visit an archive. In the first hour, you see a doc, uh, You you consult archival sources. That you find this new document that nobody had looked at before. That's not how it works. But if you do the work consistently over a longer period of time, then then there are new findings, and these are well presented in the book. I hope.
2: It definitely is, and I think it's remarkable that you conducted. So much research in so many different places. Also remarkable that you actually chose to live in these places to really get a sense of the place, the physical geography, the realities of what it might have been like to live in these places during the interwar period. I'd like to move on to chapter one now, and I was wondering if you could sketch out the nature of war in these regions and its impact on children and schooling. The purpose of the, of the first chapter is to situate the policies
1: towards children in Upper Silesia and the regions of Waipin, Saint vit and Malmedy during the First World War within a broader context of war developments. Um, on the whole, you could say that life during the war was easier for children in these borderlands than for most children who were living at the time in other parts of Belgium or in uh, pieces of land that would join uh, Poland when it uh, became independent uh, in 1918. And this was because children could stay where they were, they were relatively safe, and their schools continued to operate. What you see in the regions of Open uh, Saint witt malmedy um, children witnessed, and we do have testimonies of that, healthy soldiers marching west and then injured or captured soldiers being transported east. Um, In Upper Silesia, the war remained really an event taking place somewhere else until a civil war broke out in Silesia in the direct aftermath um, of of the war. So the war experience for children in Upper Silesia takes place after the end of the First World War. But nevertheless, what you see is that this First World War is an important turning point for how children were approached by adults, both in in Belgium and in what would become Poland. And, and this is important because it will also then have an influence on how interwar life looked like. So um, in Congress Poland, uh, which uh, during the war was under Central Powers occupation, Congress Poland enjoyed more decision-making power in education and ed- it became a laboratory for experiments in what future Polish statehood might actually look like. So policies towards children were prioritized as children were to become the backbone of the new Polish state and within that process of experimentation you see how the idea of a Polish child of what it was or what it would have to become that that gradually took shape and in Belgium, one also experimented uh, with, uh, for example, with civic education for the masses in schools, and also with preventive child welfare, which was then organized on a national level. And these two elements also featured um interwar Belgium.
2: So I'm wondering, to what degree were borderland schools different from or similar to uh, schools in other parts of these countries? So. Do we see differences in pedagogical approaches and in the curricula?
1: When I was working on this project and I presented it on conferences, um, the general remark was,
2: hmm,
1: Poland and Belgium, they were so different. You had a different political ideology. The economy was different. But actually, um, I found a lot of similarities in these borderlands. And so the main finding of the book is that going to school in one of the two borderlands was and it continued to be throughout the entire interwar years a significantly different experience than going to school elsewhere in poland or belgium and so i discovered that this yeah what you could call interwar borderland schooling had four characteristics in common and i gathered these four characteristics in in a profile so Although the, the system of power and the economy was different uh, in Polish Upper Silesia and in the regions of Eupen, Sankt and Malmedy, interwar borderland schooling had similarities. The first one was that these schools were more dependent on international and transnational changes. So you see, for example, in Polish Upper Silesia and in these regions of Sankt, um, Eupen, Sankt and Malmedy, is that he's changed state sovereignty out of a geopolitical concern for peace and not as a result of local desires for uh, self-determination. Two, um, the second characteristic. so um, Special educational policies were a frequent phenomenon in borderlands. Now, it's important that this is not the same as saying that educational policies in borderlands were always special or could not be the same as educational policies in other parts of a country at a particular moment of time. So I really think it's important to follow this borderland schooling for a longer period of time, in my case 20 years, in order to go um, beyond such a presentation of ad hoc examples and really indicate this frequency of special educational policies over a longer period of time. And the third characteristic is that within borderlands, uh, policy measures were more negotiable. What you could see is that in these borderlands, both state institutions and individuals could foreground the contradictions in in the case of my book, Language Learning Rules, and they were often successful in, in changing them. And then the last characteristic is that borderlands at time could turn into places of excess, and this could take uh, the form of like uh, very very elaborated control measures. Um, and when you look at it in the early 1920s, for example, the control measures um, ac- applicable to these regions of eupen sankt vith and Malmedy, you really see how they encapsulated the contradictions of of the Belgian Kingdom. So because this local government in the early 1920s in the borderlands was a colonial regime. It was the only colonial regime on the European continent at that time. But at the same time, it was also a transitional one. And the aim of it was eventually enabling borderland inhabitants to enjoy all the freedoms of the Belgian constitution. So here you have an example of excess.
2: So given that there's more flexibility or elasticity with respect to the pedagogical approaches and even the curricula in these borderland regions, how are these states able to cultivate national belonging? And this gets us to the topic and title of Chapter 3, Making the Border. So how, through educational policies, are Poland and Belgium able to make or reinforce the border?
1: Making the border is an important chapter in the book. It develops the argument that after these state border lines of the European continent had been drawn, it was about um, establishing and implementing rules on uh, teaching and using languages in these schools in the borderlands. And, And that this, this establishing and implementing rules, that that were techniques. Making the border. So, language learning in the borderlands became the border. This was how the border was made after state border lines had been drawn. So, what happened is that the solely German speaking school system from before was replaced by two types of schools that, um, on the basis of newly introduced rules on language learning, separated borderland pupils according to their supposed mother tongue and i say supposed because primary education was to be offered in the mother tongue of the child and the guardian of a child was responsible for indicating what that tongue mother tongue was but this mechanism created tensions whenever the mother tongue of the child was not considered the language or the languages of the nation and you see that uh, polish and belgian authorities pursued different aims. In Poland, the effort was on promoting a wider use of Polish as the primary language of instruction. And it does not come as a surprise then that nationalists in Polish Upper Silesia attempted to decrease the number of German-speaking schools. Whereas in Belgium, uh, this prescribed ideal for elite pupils was to achieve bilingualism. And so this was done through intensive foreign language training starting in the final years of primary education and so in Oipen sankt vitter malmany there were also discussions going on in borderlands about schools but these, these were about when to start a foreign language training so you see that in both case study borderlands um,
0: the border was made through schooling this episode is brought to you by Shopify
2: Was there any resistance to these policies? So what negotiations occurred on an everyday level among parents, teachers, etc.?
1: Resistance, I would say interplay. It was an interplay between state institutions on the one hand and then parents, teachers, children and clergymen on the other. And this is how these, um, these borderlands, uh, which used to be spots on a map in Versailles, turned into socially lived spaces through this interaction that is what then came to be created, uh, a social space. And so the book pays uh, much attention to these negotiations of pupils' uh, language learning. So I I really follow the continuous multidimensional dynamics of this reconfiguration of primary schooling at and also across local, national, transnational and supranational levels of of decision making. But if you want I can give you a, a small example of resistance um, in Polish upper Silesia. New textbooks were made uh, for the polonization campaign for making children learn and speak polish but these were really unpopular and and parents were responsible for buying these books but um, they didn't want to or they were unable to because uh, it was a time of economic hardship and public financial support was limited and so the distribution of these books was also limited and in the sources you have this teacher asking the parents to buy a textbook and he was only successful after the municipality made the parents pay a fine for not buying the book and even then uh, an unemployed father complained and said that the book did not mention God and So here is a quote. This is like writing a book without a dot on the I. So here's a small example.
2: That's not surprising, uh, given how religious these regions were. I'd actually like to return to the topic of interplay, which you discussed in such great detail in your last response. Uh, But in this case, I'm thinking of the role of uh, supranational bodies um, and their relationship with national authorities, even local authorities in the borderland regions. So can you talk a little bit about the relationship between externally mandated policies such as minority rights protections and local policies in the borderlands? Uh,
1: Supranational control was something uh, for Central and Eastern Europe, not for Western Europe. Um, In Central and Eastern Europe, these newly emerged states had to adhere to this supranational supervision of the League of Nations. Over the way, they, they treated their inhabitants in borderlands and uh, these inhabitants uh, were categorized as having a minority status. So, the, the, the language used in the documents is national minorities. And for Polish Apresalesia, you have two uh, agreements that were important. You had the minority treaty and you had a more elaborated uh, Geneva Convention. And these uh, detailed out, among others, how education in German, in this Polish borderland, needed to be organized. But in Western Europe, there was not such a control, supranational control, meaning that this Belgian Kingdom, it did not have to fear Control over how it governed uh, these regions of Aydin, Sankt and Malmedy, and and this difference made the, the systematic comparison uh, by times very challenging because decisions on the same matter were made on very different levels of decision making, and an example is closing a school in in one of the borderlands, um, and in the book uh, I give that example and I there compare negotiations on the supranational level of poland with negotiations held within the city council of open for the case of of belgium so yeah the relationship between supranational and local could look differently in different uh, border regions and could also look differently depending on the moment of time we're talking about
2: So we see quite a variation between the two regions with respect to how much influence uh, supranational bodies have. Uh, But I'm wondering uh, about religion as well. So what happens to private and religious schooling in these regions during the interwar period? And, you know, you made the reference to the father who was pretty disgruntled that uh, religion was no longer a part of his child's curriculum. But what happens to religion? Is it no longer typically a part of the public school curriculum? And also, what happens to religious schools? Asking
1: about private and religious schooling assumes this juxtaposition public versus private, religious versus non religious schooling. And such fault lines are more accurate for uh, education in interwar Poland. Uh, than they are for education in interwar Belgium. Because the Belgian state, it did not ambition to play a big role in education, to start with. Um, In these borderlands of Weipen, sankt and Malmedy, in the interwar years, um, there was one type of school, and that was the Catholic school. And it was state-funded, but only loosely state-controlled. So how is that possible? Uh, This result was the outcome of one of the biggest topics um, of political debate, in the 19th century uh, in Belgium and these were called the the school wars Uh, these were verbal battles Um, and this was political verbal battles and they had distilled a very clear power structure um, with the church having the freedom to develop its activities uh, within Catholic schools and these schools uh, remained more numerous than state schools in, in, in Belgium and um, this this could lead to very interesting findings. For example, the Belgian state subsidized uh, the teaching of uh, Protestant courses if at least 15 pupils signed up. But this Belgian Federation of Protestant Churches was only entitled to, to provide that education in secular schools. And uh, what you see in open, at some point uh, in the interwar years, you have parents responsible for 16 pupils, Applying to the city council to open a Protestant school, and then their request was declined because one could not find a suitable room. And this is because the region only had Catholic schools, and so the the right of these children to receive Protestant teaching uh, could not be realized. So you see here how space had turned into an essential factor in the battle over control. This would not have been possible in Polish Abarsalizia because there. These minority treaties guaranteed that religious right. Uh, but in Eupen, there was no supranational equivalent to this Geneva Convention that could intervene or rectify uh, this situation. One comment uh, about private education. In Polish, uh, private education was there in order to guarantee children could keep on being instructed uh, in, in German. This was not an issue in the regions of uh, Eupen, Sankt Vit, and Malmedy. What you see there is that after the war, a language survey was issued, and on the basis of the outcome of that language survey, two language zones were installed, and so there was a smaller French-speaking zone for schools centered around the city of Malmedy, and then a larger German-speaking zone. Centered around the cities of Eupen and saint Fitz. so you see there that local rulers did not have the intention to reduce the number of German-speaking schools, and so also private schooling was was not considered uh, necessary.
2: This is really just so fascinating how the uh, supranational intersects with the national and the local, and the fact that your analysis of these two regions, these borderland regions yield such a complex, uh, rich portrait of these different groups, different national groups during the interwar period. And on a related note, I was wondering how teachers were recruited. So given that these areas experienced uh, major territorial shifts, in the case of Poland, you have the re-establishment of the nation state. And then, of course, the multilinguistic component of all this, right? In some cases, you have pupils who are learning in a language that is not their native language. So how uh, are the respective regions finding, recruiting teachers uh, to teach in such a challenging environment?
1: In Polish Silesia, teachers uh, holding German certificates from before the war, they could stay. And I offer the example in the book of two local teachers, with the same language competencies, and one decided to work in a Polish-speaking school and the other one in a German-speaking school, because they needed to adhere to the demands laid down in these uh, minority treaties, uh, and they needed to operate within school branches, uh, offering education in different languages. You also had additional teachers, uh, and these were recruited uh, from elsewhere in Poland or Germany, and later local talent was also trained, in Polish uh, state teaching institutions. And this, this was a dead-end street for German-speaking teachers because the idea was that Polish teachers would um, replace these minority teachers. And you see that by the end of the interwar period, not a single institution of higher learning in Poland was still offering training uh, for German teachers. So... um, policy makers uh, they really aimed to people the borderlands with uh, teachers loyal to the new regime and loyal meant at the time uh, speaking polish and they received uh, they achieved their um, goal because in the 1940s teachers were among the most loyal polish citizens in in upper Silesia now Initially, the situation in the regions of eupen sankt and mammadi was different because local teachers, um, they could become civil servants and stay, but they were required to swear an oath of loyalty to the Belgian state and they refused massively and almost the entire staff left uh, for Germany. And then new teachers were recruited, so mostly from neighboring provinces in Wallonia and also priests could start to teach classes. And, of course, there was also um, a a German language teacher training course uh, in Belgium. But you see that German pedagogues in in Germany, they really criticized uh, the substandard pedagogical level of that training. And and there you see a similarity because that also happened um, for Poland. So German pedagogues also criticized that the level of teaching in Poland was not good. And so you see that this concern that that teachers in the border regions, uh, that they were not given the skills uh, to guide and shape the behavior of their pupils, that, that was only expressed by these German pedagogues. Um, because policymakers in Poland and Belgium had a less extensive uh, history with compulsory education and with reform pedagogy, and how the children were to learn their languages, um, that was really of little concern concern to them.
2: That's really interesting and actually gets me to my next question uh, about the transnational. So you discuss how foreign policy, particularly the foreign policy of Germany in the 1930s, influences or sought to influence educational policies uh, in these borderland regions. So could you talk a little bit about that? Well, a state
1: border with Germany, that is what, Polish Upper Silesia and the regions of Eupen, Sankt and Malmady had in common. And Germans on the other side of this state border line, they did not cease to show their interest in the people um, they considered to have been left behind. And so this interest manifested itself in sending school books, money, spreading pedagogical ideas, welcoming school children from across, across the state border line, and, and 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 this means that that for me for my study that this uh, comparative uh, approach that it also turned into a transnational approach and it meant that I needed to follow the changes in German policy priorities uh, over the years for example you see that this German support send over the state borderline it really intensified in the late uh, 1930s and um, an example here can be um, this, this ambitious project of uh, German authorities to build uh, the best school buildings in Polish Upper Silesia. Mm. And I will quote how they motivated to invest German tax money into the building of uh, schools in Poland. They said, and this is a quote, this is a preparation for a future recovery of the territory. That's how they perceived perceived it. Now, you see a similar mechanism in open Sankt Fit and Malmödie, although there was no need for school buildings. Um, it had a similar logic. Um, the idea was to outdo uh, local initiatives. And in open Sankt Fit and Malmödie, this, this could be done by sending over uh, fairy tale books with lots of beautiful uh, colored pictures and these could outdo locally produced um, alphabet books. And and local teachers indeed um, offered these books as prizes to their pupils during German language courses. And um, this was the most beautiful book a borderland child could possibly get. So it was a lot of money sent over the state border.
2: I find these two examples particularly fascinating because they really underscore Uh, the different ways uh, in which nationalism was promoted, right? State building and nationalism was promoted by Nazi Germany through these uh, soft power initiatives. And you see this more boldly, obviously, uh, in the case of Polish Upper Silesia, whereas in the regions you examine in Belgium, um, these fairy tale books are offered up as a type of candy uh, for uh, German uh, children there. I'd like to move on to chapter four now, where you explore how the border was "quote" scaped "unquote." So, what do you mean by this term "scaping"? Uh, what was involved in this process?
1: Borderscape. Um, this word unifies the words uh, "border" and with the suffix "scape," and this suffix refers to this multi-dimensional dynamics of shaping and carving the border. In the case of my book, through education. And it is a concept used in border studies, but I haven't seen it in in historiography. Now, for me, this concept really worked uh, because it allowed me um, to focus on the local level of the everyday life in the borderlands, but also to take into consideration when and how bordering processes exceeded the borderlands. And then you come to see that both borderlands functioned as um, the physical places where debates were held or control measures were installed that generated an impact far beyond their geographical area. You see that institutions, teachers and parents in in both borderlands um, steered discussions towards the contradictions within uh, policies in order to not only test um, the limits of a certain system of power, but also to, to bend these limits. So you see that in, in, in the borderlands, discussions were held over language learning that, that were crucial for much wider social spaces within Poland, Germany, Belgium, and the League of Nations, and and that is the borderscape. And, and I even go so far in the book um, as far as to say that, that debates over power in these two borderlands took a similar dynamic. Um, And here I use the insights of a a Swiss uh, social geographer. His name is Georges Ravestin. And according to him, these diverse and changing interactions between institutions and human beings about education, they yielded to achieve, and here is a quote, uh, the greatest possible autonomy comparable with the resources of the system, unquote. So basically what he says is that these continuous negotiations that, that is what you can expect in borderlands. So even uh, while having a different system of power, these borderlands in these borderlands changes uh, to these systems of power uh, had a similar uh, dynamic.
2: So basically, the scaping you refer to is a type of gardening, uh, a type of constant gardening, I guess you could say, that includes multiple actors um, and is a process that is ongoing, that's continuous, and so you see uh, these institutions, and in the case of your study, obviously, education, schooling, being refashioned, reshaped, uh, depending on local, national, supranational needs. And actually, this gets me to my next question, which has to do with the role of nationalism, and in particular, the increased embrace of nationalism by countries such as Germany, in the 1930s, and how that influences uh, educational policies in these borderlands, particularly places where you have ethnic minorities. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: In the 1930s, in the regions of Eupen, Sankt Vit and Malmadi there was more democracy than in the 1920s, and, and in Polish Oprosalija, it was the opposite. So, in Belgium, you had a new educational law and it gave more freedom to local schools in deciding um, in which language to teach um, and when to start foreign language learning. Um, whereas in Poland, um, you had this um, minority treaty and the Geneva Convention uh, phasing out. And afterwards, uh, at the end of the 1930s, it was the Polish state uh, that decided in which language um, a child should learn. And in the book, you find an example of entrance exams for primary school children in German conducted by Polish state officials. So this was about whether a child uh, knew German well enough in order to uh, be sent to a German-speaking school in Polish or And you see that these six-years-old children weren't given a fair chance. And then also, what is even more important, according to me, at the end of the 1930s, is that these borderlands became increasingly uh, caught up um, in these geopolitical strategies for a future redivision of the European continent, and and both borderlands were basically treated as potential currency that could be used in negotiations with uh, Germany to pay off the security of the Polish or or Belgian um, mainland. So nationalism, yes, but on the other hand, also the idea that I mean, if. It's needed. We could get rid of these borderlands.
2: And there goes the idealism of the immediate post-war period in which these borderland regions could be laboratories for promoting peace and multi-ethnic cooperation. Okay, I'd like to move on to Chapter 5 now, where you pose the question, did language learning enable borderland pupils to become more equal to pupils receiving their education elsewhere in Poland or Belgium? So what were your findings? How did you answer this question? Chapter five is titled
1: um, A Universal Childhood. And universal childhood means that all children should enjoy an equitable childhood experience irrespective of their social background. But these concrete ideas on how to realize how um, universal childhood should actually look like in practice that were developed in the 1930s. In Poland and Belgium, these were very, very different different ways of doing it. So you see that universal childhood was really understood in, in national terms. And and in Polish Persylicia, like elsewhere in Poland, uh, authorities really chose uh, to control uh, the organization of primary education. And so what you see is a repeat of these battles over the closure of schools not offering um, teaching in in, in Polish but on the other hand, what you also see is that the idea of a Silesian child was constructed, and this Silesian child was conceived as being hindered from playing a uh, constructive role in the new Polish nation state. And as a result, um, this Polish Upper Silesia really turned into a highly uh, innovative laboratory of reform pedagogical experiments um, and studies. And this was this supported this idea uh, that that a universal childhood, a Polish uh, childhood, uh, is possible. Whereas um, in, in Belgium, uh, this Belgian statesman really understood uh, universal childhood as let a child learn in the language its guardian chooses. And this was made very, very easy. And it re- prevented um, repetition of this earlier language-learning conflict. But the role of the Roman Catholic Church in education was much bigger in Belgium, and it opposed uh, reform pedagogy, and so um, it was not interested in 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 this in how a, a borderland child um, should learn its languages. Not at all.
2: I find this particularly fascinating because um, uh, in the Polish context, as you note, there's this emphasis that the language and primary school language uh, schooling um, be in Polish, which makes sense given the reestablishment of the Polish nation state, but yet it coexists with innovative, more modern pedagogical approaches, whereas in the case of Belgium, um, there's not as much of a concern with language, right? So it can be the language uh, of choice by by the guardian, by the parent, Uh, whereas because of the influence of the Catholic Church, uh, you have... You know, less uh, innovation uh, with regard to to pedagogy. So, really interesting how these comparisons play out. Uh, okay, I'd like to move on to the conclusion now. And in your conclusion, you compare your findings uh, to borderland schooling in Soviet Ukraine and Yugoslavia during the interwar period. So, could you elaborate
1: on that? In the conclusion, I started to paint an overview of state policies to uh, borderland schools throughout Europe, but it did not. Uh, enable me to develop an understanding of this multi-dimensional dynamics involved in making and escaping the escaping borders, and that is why I then decided to zoom in again on on two cases and rely on secondary literature uh, to compare, um, with the aim to see whether this profile I developed um, of similar characteristics um, in interwar borderland schools, whether the profile holds and on the basis of the literature study I did, it, it does. So it seems the profile seems applicable to other borderlands. However, and this is what I learned from the Yugoslav case, um, it is important to follow where the change of state borderlines generated its effects. So think away from the geographical space of the borderlands if necessary. Following the borderscape really means tracing how, after the drawing of a state borderline, transient space was given meaning to, through the interaction between the rulers and the ruled, throughout the country and at various levels of decision-making. So it is possible um, that that you can see effects uh, in minority schools in more centrally located uh, parts of a country. So this means that, that borderlands could vary in spatial extent, and that the meaning of what was peripheral and what was central, that that could also change. And so this also means for this profile that that the relevance of it and the relative importance that that could differ from case to case, and it can also change within one case over time. But what, what remains true for all the cases discussed in the book and in the conclusion is that the spaces and the lives of borderland children in the interwar years were influenced by borders.
2: Well, Machtelt, we've run out of time. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for sharing your book uh, with our listeners. And before I let you go, could you tell us about your current research project?
1: As I said um, at the beginning of this interview, I I moved out of um, Austria. I moved to Luxembourg because I became a professor at the Center of Contemporary and Digital History here in Luxembourg. uh, And I'm holding the chair uh, of Contemporary Transnational um, History here. And since a year, I'm also a senior researcher in a project uh, financed by the European Research Council called uh, Social Politics in European Borderlands, a comparative and transnational study. And and this project aims to uh, reframe the history of welfare and social care uh, in Europe um, by focusing on 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 different uh, border uh, regions, and I am co-responsible for this Luxembourgish slash French slash Belgian slash German borderlands. Um, and there, in this project, we look at this interplay between state policies, uh, but also voluntary associations and and families, co-shaping uh, welfare systems. And this summer, for example. I've been looking at archival documents on on transnational veteran welfare after the First World War. So um, I primarily at this stage uh, looked at um, what happened with Luxembourgish soldiers who fought in the French Foreign Legion in the First World War. So I look at uh, how the veteran policy was made in a post, in the post-war in, in, in Luxembourg, a country that did not have an army.
2: Yeah, it's a really impressive and ambitious project. And I know many of us scholars uh, of Europe, modern Europe in particular, are looking forward to learning more about the studies that result from this project and integrating it into our teaching. Uh, And I wish you the best of luck as you continue to work on this project. And I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: I liked presenting my book to new book review listeners, and I hope that some of them will find their golden open access copy of the book on the website of the publisher, Berghahn Books. And many thanks to Jill Messino for being such a nice interlocutor.